Hey everyone, podcast editor Matt here. Before we begin this week's podcast, we just wanted to thank you for coming along on this new adventure with us. The reception of the new podcast, specifically for the long story short class, has just blown us away. Secondly, I personally wanted to apologize for the mix-up with last week's upload. That should be all sorted out now, so if you haven't listened to guest speaker Alex Massad's discussion on the fall from February 2nd, or Dave's class from last week, be sure to go back and give those a playthrough. Third, next week we will be taking a break from the long story short class to bring you a special edition where David and Becca will answer whatever questions you may have about the Bible. Truly, you get to ask absolutely anything about the Bible. We'll do our best to answer as many questions as possible in an engaging, informative, and fun fashion. You can submit your questions to Pastor Dave at dbruner at knoxprez.org. That's D-B-R-U-N-E-R at knoxprez.org. Be sure to have them in by Monday, February 20th. Hello and welcome to the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. Let's listen in. Welcome everybody to the Long Story Short class. My name is Dr. David Brunner. I'm very glad you're here. We are on week four, which is on the Exodus. So we're, we've gotten out of the book of Genesis. We've gotten into the second book of the Bible. This series sort of starts slow, but progresses more quickly as things go on. So uh, we're in the book of Exodus, I think for this week, this coming Sunday. And then after that, um, then after that, I think we go all the way to Joshua. So we do, we'll start to move a little more quickly after this. I wanna make two announcements before I open with prayer. The first is just to remind you, if you have um, a Bible question or a theology question, or even just a, a random question about the Bible that you've always wanted to know the answer to, feel free to go ahead and shoot those to me via email, or you can just tell me verbally after this class is over. Becca and I are gonna do a Ask Me Anything podcast next week, focused on sort of random questions folks have rattling around. Um, so we'd love to hear your questions and thoughts, and we will make those the material of the podcast and try and answer them as best as we can. Second, reminder that we're not meeting next week because it's Ash Wednesday. Come instead to the wonderful worship service. That's going to be fantastic. So you're warmly welcome to that. Let me pray for us. Yeah? One quick question. Sir? Are we going to push everything forward one week? No. As a result of that? No. So this class will just skip week five, and then we will continue with week six. So... Um, that was the simplest way to do it, to not create additional confusion about which week the class was in. I didn't wanna, we spent the last five weeks getting you all set on this schedule, and I think we only had one of those in you. So if we switched, you guys would just be all over the place. So small groups that are meeting outside of here will just follow the regular schedule. Small groups will stay on the same schedule and we just drop one week. Yeah, thank you, Randy. I'm sure that it was clarifying to others as well. Um, okay. Any other questions about those matters? Let's pray, and then we'll talk about the Bible. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here together today to study your word in Holy Scripture. We ask, Lord God, that you would help us to hear your word in the pages of Exodus, to understand it, to appreciate it, to love it, and to take its message to heart. We ask this, um, trusting that your Holy Spirit will be among us in this time. 
In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to get to the Bible in just a minute, but before we get into the Bible, I want you guys to read a poem with me. And at first, you will not see any connection between this poem and what we're talking about. But bear with me, because the connection will be apparent pretty soon. Okay, how many of you know this poem, Ozymandias by Percy Shelley? Peg does. I see one or two other hands, vague memories of like high school or college literature class, right? It's a lovely poem. Percy Shelley, of course, one of the most uh, uh, appreciated and famous uh, poets in classic English literature. I'm just going to read this to you. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, to vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survived, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So raise your hand if you think you know why I want us to read this poem. <laughs> oh goody, okay. So just hold this poem in your mind, create a little manila folder in your mind with this poem on it, and put that folder away for a moment. We're gonna come back to it in about 15 minutes, I promise, okay? Okay. Would you like me to read it again? All right, I'll read it one more time. So do you get the, do you get the gist of what it's about? I'll read it again and then we'll make sure everyone understands it. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So, they tell you in poetry class that you're never supposed to explain a poem. I will venture a little bit of explanation. So, this is a... Um, a poem about a person who goes to an antique land, and what does he see? He sees in the middle of the desert, so this is a, a Middle Eastern country, 
someplace where there's a lot of sand, two enormous stone legs standing up in the middle of the desert. Part of a statue, but the top of the statue has been knocked off. So all that remains standing is the legs. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. So there's the head of the statue lying on its side in the stand where it's been knocked off. And you look at the face and what does the face look like? Does he look happy, like a friendly guy? No, he looks like the worst boss you've ever had in your entire life, right? Mean and accustomed to command. Um, and the kicker is in this, on the second page, he says, and on the pedestal, so there's a pedestal that the legs are standing on, it says, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. What does that mean? Fear me. Right, so what, what Ozymandias, the king, meant by it was, look at me. Look at how much stuff I have. Look at how powerful I am. Look at, I'm, I'm the biggest person. I'm the biggest boy on the playground and I have the most toys. When he says he might be, is he mocking God? I don't think so. Although we, I mean, he certainly isn't a God-fearing person to hear the poet tell it. He, I think he is mocking other rulers or other wealthy people. He's saying, essentially he is saying, no one is richer or more powerful than me. And the irony of the poem is exactly what Frank pointed out to us, right? That he erected a statue of himself to say, look at how powerful I am. And every other rich and powerful person from around the world, when they see this statue of me, is going to be sad, right? Just like when Elon Musk goes to like Jeffrey Bezos's house, right? One of them leaves feeling a little sad because he's thinking, well, I don't have four solariums. I only have three solariums. Why does he have four solariums in his house, right? Same thing. What's, what's the irony in, in the message that Ozymandias has printed on his statue? It's broken. It's abandoned in the desert, right? Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's surrounded by a desert. Everything is completely indifferent to his achievements. So in a way, Percy Shelley is saying, all right, my fellow English people, you may think you are the bee's knees with your money and your accomplishments and your wealth and your prestige, but remember, this too shall pass. So that's part of what this poem's about. Does that help you all understand it a little bit more? Okay, thank you, David, for that suggestion. So, put this in your back pocket, put it in that manila folder. We're gonna come back to it in a second. Okay, so last week, we looked at the story of Abraham. We looked at the, the um, what I call the covenantal drama that runs from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, that culminates in Genesis 22. And this week, we're in a whole different book, the book of Exodus. So I want us to try and piece together what happens between Genesis 22 and Exodus 1. So 
can anyone try and summarize in a very broad brush, 50,000 foot way, what happens between Genesis 22 and Exodus 1? So I've, I did it again. I, for, I asked a question, but I forgot to hand out the microphone. Thank you, Matt, for reminding me. So I'm going to summarize what you just said, Frank, and then I'm going to hand out the microphone to those who want to comment after that. Um, so Abraham's family expands. We hear about other children, and eventually there's a famine, and they wind up where? Egypt, Egypt right? So, and who are, the, who are the children between Abraham and Egypt? Does anyone know? Isaac and Jacob, that's right. And there's a third one, the son of Jacob or Israel is? Uh, that's Jacob or Israel's brother, Joseph. So you, you got Isaac, you got Jacob slash Israel, and then you've got Joseph in succeeding generations. Um. And Frank is exactly right. As the Bible tells it, as the book of Genesis tells it, there's a famine in, uh, in Canaan. So um, Joseph's family comes to Egypt where they have previously sold him into slavery. And they've come to find out that their brother is not dead, but in fact has risen to a high state in that land. And so the book of Genesis ends on a really happy note. Um, it ends with the family reunited and safe in Egypt. They survive the famine there, and indeed, God provides Joseph with wisdom that helps him save the people of Egypt from the famine, as well as many others. And there is a reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers, which is drawn out in a very dramatic, incredibly tense fashion very poignantly depicted. So at the end of Genesis, the message kind of is they all lived happily ever after, right? So um, how does the book of, what happens in the book of Exodus? So what happens at the beginning of the book of Exodus? So um, eventually the Pharaoh that really thought that Joseph was amazing and knew about all the wonderful things he did um, he passed away, and 400 years later, they said, hey, you Israelites have really, really populated, and we're getting a little nervous, mm -hmm. so they decided to put him into slavery, and it's not so happy anymore, and they're miserable. And they're not where they're supposed to be. They're not supposed mm -hmm. to be in the land of Jacob. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's a very, um, very good summary, Peg. Thank you. So what you see is... Exodus 1, a new pharaoh rises to the throne who fears the Hebrews. There's that famous line that just says, and a new Pharaoh came to the throne who did not know Joseph, right? And that's where all the trouble begins. The old Pharaoh thought Joseph was as good as gold because he had proved his worth. The new Pharaoh doesn't know that. So he begins to enslave and oppress them. Exodus 2 tells the story of Moses' origins. So he's born an Israelite. Pharaoh makes this effort, the Bible says, to snuff out the Hebrew population, especially the males. There are some twists and turns. Moses is raised in Pharaoh's palace. He kills an Egyptian overseer who is oppressing a Jew. And then he is kind of caught and flees Egypt when his crime is discovered. Raise your hand and 
if these are relatively familiar to you. Okay, so to many of us, though not all of us. So, Moses then settles in the land of Midian. He receives hospitality from Royel and his family, and he marries Royel's daughter Zipporah. And together they have a child, Gershom, which interestingly comes from the Hebrew word ger, or foreigner. So he names his son, I was a stranger in a foreign land, which is really kind of quite beautiful. Okay. Then we get to Exodus 3, which is, uh, well, you'll see what it is. It's the story of Moses meeting God at the burning bush. Um, what I'm going to do is I actually would like us to read Exodus 3 and 4, four verses 1 through 17. Um, and then I'm going to give you all some time to talk about it, digest it, ask questions, come up with observations. It's a little bit longer of a reading uh, than we would do in church, but it, it, it all works together as one big chunk. So you can pull out your Bibles if you want. We're going to start in Exodus 3, and we'll go all the way through 4.17. This is from the New Revised Standard. And, and by the way, you should note if your translation is different in any interesting way than mine, right? If yours says A and my says the, you know, you don't have to tell us about that unless that's really important. But if, sometimes if you pay attention, you'll notice an important difference. Okay. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not turned up, burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, 
the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. Go and assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has appeared to me, saying, I have given heed to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us now go a three days' journey into the wilderness, so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. I know, however, that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders that I will perform in it. After that, he will let you go. I will bring this people into such favor with the Egyptians that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman living in her neighbor's house for jewelry of silver and gold and clothing and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Chapter 4. Then Moses answered, But suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground, and it became a snake. And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it, and it became a staff in his hand. So that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous, as white as snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or heed the first sign, they may believe the second sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or heed you, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak." But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak fluently. Even now he was coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak to you for the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you, and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand this staff, with which you shall perform the signs. 
Okay, there's a lot there. Take a minute or two, turn to the person next to you and try and find one thing that strikes you that you think is neat or interesting and one question that you have. Discuss amongst yourselves. All right, why don't we come back together? Stop talking about the Bible with each other. Start talking about the Bible with me. So what jumped out at you? What questions did you have? Or what did you talk about with your partner that struck you as interesting? Um, I kind of wondered why God needed to repeat several times to Moses um, the fact that came from Abraham, yeah. uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, Peg and I were wondering, was that because he was preparing Moses to go out to speak to the people mm. and that the, he, he would likely have to remind the people of that as well? Sure. That's wonderful. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. So let me get, I'm giving you a promissory note to come back to that, Okay. And I, I'm giving you a, a, a pedagogical IOU, okay? Um, that, that's a great question. So I think, I think I'll say, I think clearly what God is doing is evoking the covenant that he made and kept with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But there's something else going on that we're going to talk about as well. What else struck you or did you wonder about, Karen? We've been studying Exodus in WOW, and one of the questions was about um, Jethro, the Jethro, Ooh. the yeah. priest of Midian. So priest of what? And so right at the very beginning of three there, yeah. a priest of what? And then since Moses married his daughter, is this mixing the, you know, the races? Sure. Or um, where is it an God interfaith wants, marriage or yeah, something like that. marriage where God is wanting to set the Israelites aside to mm -hmm. be his covenant people. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. I have no idea what the answer is. <laughs> um, I'll look into it and try and let you know. Thank you. What else? What jumped out at you? What questions did you have or your partner? Diane. I was wondering why God was so patient. You know, I, I don't think of the Old Testament God as being patient. And it was like, why didn't he just kind of get a little angry with Moses? And sure. he, particularly when he got to the point that Moses was saying, I'm not fluent and you ought to right. use my brother. <laughs> and I, you know, God being all powerful, why didn't he just say, look, you know, this right. is what I want you to do. And chop, chop, Moses. And, and, well, and even make it more fluent if that's what, sure. you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's a great question. So one of the things, I'll say this, this isn't exactly an answer to your question. One of the things you see when you study the Old Testament is we have this stereotype that the Old Testament is full of judgment and the angry God and the New Testament is full of grace and mercy and that Jesus, he's a real softy. And the, the answer is actually much more complicated than that, that there is a ton of grace and mercy throughout the Old Testament. And there is also far more judgment and anger than we might sometimes like to admit in the New Testament. Um, and we, to simply say, oh, I don't like the Old Testament because there's too much 
whatever in it sometimes doesn't, isn't fair to what's actually in the Old Testament. Um, I think that's a great, but it's a great question. Why is God so patient? What, something about the God we meet in Exodus is determined to work through Moses, despite Moses's manifest reluctance. Um, I'm not sure why. So I think about the fact that in, you know, you get into the New Testament with the Apostle Paul and he talks about having a thorn in his side. And I yeah. think it's to keep him humble. Mm -hmm. He did not choose a man who had perfect speech, who was eloquent and who was sure. amazing and fantastic. He wanted somebody who kind of had a little bit of a disadvantage to keep yeah. him from getting a big head. Right. And this is something that we talked about last week, right? Where in a sense, something you see throughout the whole Bible is that God chooses yeah, imperfect people. I was going to say wildly incompetent people. That's, it's probably more gracious to say imperfect people um, to accomplish, accomplish his mission, partly because it shows what? It shows that it's God really working through that person <laughs> and not anything that that person is bringing to the table themselves. And so the, there, uh, some of that principle is very much working here. Yeah. Maybe, maybe there's a certain level of respect for Moses. Yeah, certainly. So Aaron, as I was saying, was raised as a Jew. Sure. And as Moses was raised with the pharaohs. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering if Moses didn't feel like they would listen to him because he was not Jewish and Aaron yeah. was. So God Maybe. would just tell him what to tell Aaron and Aaron would do it and Moses would just use all of God's power. So they were a twofer. That's a, that's a really interesting idea, Sandy. Yeah, I mean, so the, the character of Moses is a very interesting one, right? But partly because he is an outsider. He's clearly not an Egyptian. But he's also, he's kind of an outsider to the Egyptians. He's also clearly different than your average Hebrew in the book of Exodus, right? He grew up in the halls of power. Um, probably, you know, does he speak like an Egyptian or a Hebrew? Who knows, right? So maybe there's some anxiety going on in Moses about, am I the right person to do this? Will they listen to me? Perhaps I can rope in my brother, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's an interesting way to read this text. Frank? If you go just a little further in chapter 4, down to verse 24, on a trip uh, at an overnight campsite, it happened that the Lord confronted him, him being Moses, and intended <laughs> to put him to death. Right. You, you found because the, he hadn't circumcised his son. You found the craziest passage in here. Yeah. Well, that, because he probably was not technically a Jew. So he does, wasn't raised that way, and he, he didn't know maybe about... Does everybody know about this? So this is chapter 4, verse 24 and following. It's just three verses, but it's, it's wild and crazy. On the way, at a place where they spent the night, the Lord met him and tried to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Truly you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So she let him alone. It was then she said, a bridegroom of blood by circumcision. Um, everything about that passage is very cryptic. 
So when I looked at a couple commentaries about this. And so first of all, the Hebrew is ambiguous. So when it says the Lord met him and tried to kill him in verse 24, that's a, it's an ambiguous pronoun. So we're not exactly sure if it's referring to Moses or someone else, Moses' son. Um, second, we're not sure why in this passage the Lord is trying to kill Moses. We're not sure why it doesn't succeed. You, elsewhere in the Old Testament, right, when God makes up his mind to destroy a person, whatever we might think about that, it usually happens pretty quick, right? Um, here it's kind of warded off. And the suggestion was, yeah, it has something to do with circumcision and Moses not observing that, either for himself or for his son. And once again, Moses' life is saved by the quick thinking and action of a Hebrew woman, just like it is in chapter 2 when uh, someone puts him in a basket and lets him float down the river. So we don't know exactly what's going on here. As a general rule, I don't think God tries to kill people. So this is one of those passages where there's a big difference between what the Bible says and how we're supposed to act today. I don't, obviously you know that just as well as I do, but probably worth saying. Um, but yeah, it's a real humdinger of a passage, isn't it? Let me, uh, does anyone else have a comment or a question you really wanted to ask? Let me, let me take us to um, some discussion of this. Let me ask this, what does God want in this passage? What is God's desire? He wants Moses to do what he asks. Yes, he, absolutely. And maybe he's concerned that, well, he really wasn't raised as a Jew. He doesn't even know his family history. And he's not, well, he should have been circumcised because it was three months old when, I, when they put him in the basket. Sure. So he should have done it, but he didn't do it for his son. So sure. apparently he's put the, that tradition on the side. So um, what's he asking Moses to do? Frank or anybody? Would it go to Pharaoh? I mean, and, yeah. and free my people. Yeah, exactly. But he's not really kind of like one of, one of his people at that time. <laughs> sure. He needs some persuading for whatever reason. He is just not that into the idea. I, have you ever asked a person out on a date and had them? It's not like they say, ew, no, that's gross. But they're like, no, yeah, thank you. You know, they're just, they're, they're like, it's like, it's like they can see the idea but they're just not excited by it. Maybe I've had this experience a little more than some of you. I don't know. We don't have to go into that. My point is, I feel, I feel, right, exactly. Becca called me Josh for six months. It's no big deal. Um, the point is, I, in a way, I feel like God is wooing Moses, right? And Moses is the person who's like, no, I can't. I have to wash my hair. No, I can't. I told my cousin I would, I would cat sit for him. No, I can't. My uncle's niece's third cousin is having toe surgery. And then, you know, finally he, he runs out of excuses. So what God wants is for Moses to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, right? What are the circumstances that God is concerned about? Are the, are the Israelites happy? Right, that's exactly right. So God's aware that bad stuff is going on among his people and this occasions his concern. 
So this is immensely important for showing us something about the character of God. So it's right there in verses 7 and 8, right? I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. So what God wants is for Israel to be free and for them to be restored to the land that he promised to them in Abraham. Think about this. So on one hand, the God of the Bible, the God of Exodus, is a God who wants to be faithful to his covenant. This is immensely important. So at this point in the biblical story, Genesis and Exodus, we pretty much know one thing, right? There is a God, and God made a covenant with Abraham. (laughs) We don't know anything about Jesus yet. We don't even know anything about King David yet. But this God is serious about this covenant. So that's part of the reason of Randy's question, right? Why is God going on and on about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Well, that's one reason why. Second, The God of the Bible is a God of compassion. This is a really obvious point, but it's worth highlighting even here. So this God wants to help people in need and wants to help people who are suffering and oppressed. And if that sounds commonsensical to you, It's because we've all been marinating in Christianity, which is such an important influence in our culture for for our whole lives. In the ancient world, it was not a foregone conclusion that the gods or God were attentive and cared about people's suffering. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, right? Remember part of what is significant about Genesis 1 is simply that God is faithful and reliable. God creates a good world for us to live in in which we can flourish. He's not capricious. He's not unpredictable. He's not vindictive. I think there's a similar thing going on here where the God of Exodus is compassionate. This is something you're going to see throughout the Bible but it, it is an important note that is being sounded here that we will see further and further on. Similarly, and more specifically, the God of the Bible wants justice. The God of the Bible wants justice. God takes up the cause of the oppressed and fights against those who enslave or harm them. So, we're... Um, We'll get into this a little bit more next week, and of course we won't be meeting next week, but you will have a chance to read it. You know, look carefully at the Ten Commandments, for instance, right? People, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me, right. Does anyone know what comes right before the first commandment? So, what comes right before the first commandment, the so-called prologue, of the Ten Commandments is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. Therefore, here's how you're going to behave, because I've already done this stuff for you. So, God puts an expectation on Israel that they will not lie, that they will not cheat, 
They will not steal and they will not oppress people. And this is, it's there if you look at it in the Ten Commandments, but it's even more clear in the law. If you look at the second half of the book of Exodus, which is pretty much all law, and you look at the book of Leviticus, which of course we're going to skip right over because large parts of it are very challenging to read. But if you look at the book of Leviticus, it says numerous times, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You will not oppress a widow, an orphan, or a stranger because you yourselves once were strangers in the land of Egypt. So there's a straight line you can draw between Exodus 3 and God's care and concern for what Jesus eventually calls the least of these the, and the Old Testament injunction to watch out for the orphan, the widow, and the stranger, the most vulnerable members of the community, and a passage like Matthew 25, where Jesus says you have to, you know, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, you did it to who? To me, to God. Are, are you with me on that point? Okay. Randy. Okay. The God of the Bible is a God of compassion. And, yeah. and that compassion, you said, comes through in, in, um, in God wanting to get the least of these, those that are being oppressed yeah. in Egypt, back out of there. Right. But they were somewhere else before they got there. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> they were not necessarily the least of these at that time sure. before they were sure. cast away. Yes. So what's what up I with was that, God? Is, is, was there a God of compassion prior to bringing them out of Egypt mm-hmm. this time? Yes. So that's a great question. So was God a compassionate God prior to them being slaves in Egypt? So from a, so the short answer is yes. So as as a Christian, I want to affirm, of course, God was a God of compassion from the very beginning. I would say um, from the perspective of reading the Bible from beginning to end, the theme of divine compassion and God's hunger for justice is really deepened in a profound way in the Exodus story. As I would say, that's revealing who God was all along. So it's, you know, it's not as though God is on a, uh, you know, God's not on a semester abroad where he goes to Spain and is like, oh, I really learned about myself some cool stuff, and then he comes back. Right? I don't think that's what's going on, but I think this is, this is disclosing who God is in a really wonderful way. Okay, now we're back to the poem. Now we're back to the poem. So, guess what Middle Eastern country Ozymandias is based on? I'll give you one guess. Egypt. Egypt. So, Um, In the early 1800s, when that poem was written, and I can go back to it if you want, um, Napoleon had taken over Egypt, and there were all sorts of cultural artifacts that were being discovered. And of course, you want to put discovered in quotes because they were, you know, it was liberated and then brought back to France or to the UK or whatever, where they don't belong. But there was this fascination in Europe about the ancient Middle Eastern culture. And they did find an enormous statue of someone uh, in the desert. 
and it had very much the same kind of bombastic description. And uh, Shelley heard a, heard a recounting of that story, and that's what inspired this poem. So on one level, you can read this as, that's the voice of Pharaoh, right? So they think Ozymandias is, might actually have been a synonym for Ramses II, who was one of the pharaohs, and may actually have been the pharaoh that oppressed Moses. That's probably not likely, but it's like one of a couple possibilities. It's also, I just think so much of, there are so many other um, ways of thinking about the world that are more in line with Ozymandias <laughs> than with the God of Exodus, right? So. I think if you look at Ozymandias, it's a helpful contrast because I think a lot of the world we live in is saying the point of life is to stand up on your pedestal and say, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair, right? So the point of life is to make the most money, have the fanciest car, have the biggest house, have the most attractive spouse, yada, 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 yada. It's all very boring and predictable, and we know pretty early on an intellectual level that it's kind of stupid, but it still has this siren song, doesn't it? Yeah, I think Ozymandias is here as a contrast piece, as a way of saying, what might God be like if he weren't compassionate? And the answer is, God might be something like Ozymandias, right? or God would want us to be something like Ozymandias, and what a terrible world that would be. Okay, so what is Moses' response to God's call? We've already talked about this, right? Moses is not enthusiastic. Moses offers no less than four objections to God. So clearly he's not in any hurry to obey. Um, so he First, in chapter three, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God's response in verse 12 is, I will be with you, right? Number two, this is where it gets really interesting. If they ask me, what is your name? What shall I say to them? So nowadays, we don't really think of God having a name, right? Or if God has a name, maybe it's Jesus, Maybe it's Father, Son, and Spirit. But back then, this was, there, were, there was a belief in many different gods that were incompatible. So there needed to be some way of singling out the Hebrew God over against other alleged gods. So God's response is really fascinating and very cryptic. So my New Revised Standard Version says, uh, in verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. Does your Bible say that? Does anyone have something different? Yahweh, okay. Anyone else have anything different? So um, this is, it's those three Hebrew words, you can see them there italicized. Ayah, Asher, Ayah. So that can be translated, I am who I am, or I will be what I will be, or I will be who I will be. Um, it can also simply be I am, as in verse 14, 
when he says, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So first of all, if this is a proper name for God, this is a very strange kind of proper name, right? I was, can you imagine me saying, hello, this is my wife. What's your wife's name? My wife's name is I am. Very pleased to meet you, I am. How do you do, right? So a very unusual name, but the name um, I am who I am is vague in the Hebrew. It's not precise. It, there's a question of translation and how you bring it into English. And then we get the, the, um, the translation, the Lord. So in verse 15, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors. So does, it, does everyone's translation say the Lord in verse 15? Yeah, so some, some will just go ahead and say Yahweh. So this is actually a translator's convention. So in the Hebrew, it has the so-called tetragrammaton. Tetragrammaton just means four letters. Why just say the, you know, it's like saying the four-letter name, except I don't think we want to say God's a four-letter word, so we call it the tetragrammaton, right? Um, this is God's name throughout much of the Bible. So in many English Bibles, when you see the phrase, the Lord and it is capitalized, L-O-R-D, or capitalized, that's a sign that in the Hebrew, it says yod heh vah Yahweh. Um, in ancient Israel, it was forbidden to pronounce the name of God aloud. And so it was customary in ancient Israel to use a, a, another name to substitute for that one. So instead of saying, Yahweh, which was forbidden, you would say Adonai, right, the Lord, or you would say El Shaddai, God Almighty, or you would say, sometimes Jews today will say Hashem, which means the name. So it's a, it's a way of getting around it. So Christian translations of the Old Testament, even today, nod to this respect for the mysterious and holy divine name by not by frequently not printing Y-H-W-H or Yahweh and instead just substituting the Lord. I think that's fascinating. So the, the God of Exodus has a name. He can be named, he can be addressed. You can say, oh my Lord, oh my Yahweh. Um, but the name is itself mysterious, right? So. We might imagine, you know, if you're getting robbed and a mysterious man in black riding on a horse comes to your rescue and saves you, and you say, who are you? And he rides off into the distance and says, my name is Mystery and disappears, right? Well, you've learned something about that masked man, but you also don't know that much more than when you started. Something like that very silly analogy is going on here. God's giving a name, but it's a name that means I am who I am. I'll be who I want to be. What does that name mean? So there's something about the dramatic transcendence and power and unpin-downableness of God in the Bible at work here. So a book that I read about... Um, uh the Old Testament and studying it as a, you know, from a literary point of view is, 
in Genesis, God has Adam name all of the animals and, and everything, and he also mm-hmm. wanted them to have dominion over them. The only one he does not name is his wife. Sure. Uh, God says, you will be woman, but that also means that nobody owns God, so maybe that's why sure. he doesn't really, shouldn't have a name because nobody owns him. Sure. That's wonderful. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a really interesting connection, right? That, that God names himself but it's a mysterious name that gives Moses enough to rely on, but not enough to control. And isn't that the situation we often find ourselves in, in our journey in faith? Okay, so we're still ticking off objections to God's call. So number three is, suppose they do not believe me or listen to me, and then you get this the miraculous story about God's power in the form of the staff that turns into the snake, and in the form of the hand that he puts into the cloak, which comes out leprous, and then he puts it back in, and it comes out totally fine. And then you get this fourth objection. I have never been eloquent. I am slow of speech. This is followed by my favorite verse in the whole two chapters, where he just says, oh, Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) Um, I have prayed that prayer more than once in my life. God does not listen to it. Um, but don't feel, you, if you pray that prayer, you're in good company. And at this, you know, at this point, you can see on the page, God is starting to get annoyed, right? Because God says, well, who gives speech to mortals, right? Who teaches people to talk? I'll be with you. Yes, it, in fact, uh, it was right after that, and this is the first time that, that this occurred, after Moses said, oh, master, please send somebody else, God got angry mm-hmm. with Moses. Sure. Um, and finally, yeah, you, there's this uh, sort of annoyed concession to Moses um, and it, you know, conscripting of his brother. And only after these many objections does Moses finally obey. So Moses took his wife and his sons, put them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt. Um, right? So Moses does respond to God's call. He does finally give in. He finally obeys. Um, And he becomes a paradigm for subsequent call stories throughout the Old Testament. So those stories, for instance, in the book of Isaiah or the book of Jeremiah, will often feature what is called a demural, right? So if, you know, if someone says, hey, Dave, do you want to go out drinking with me all night long on a Thursday night, I would say, oh no, I demur. I'm not interested in that. Thank you. Right? So the the demural is when the prophet or the person God calls, God says, hey, I want you to speak my word. And that person says, no, I, I can't do that. I'm not up to that. So Isaiah does this. Jeremiah does this. It's in a lot of places throughout the Old Testament. So that becomes a feature that is part of other people's stories and that the authors of those um, books weave in. Okay. Um, I want us to move ahead to Exodus 5 and 6 because I want to get back to Randy's question about why God repeats himself. So let's just have a quick summary of what happens in Exodus 5. So you can open up your Bibles and take a look. It'll probably be right there in the heading. What what happens in Exodus 5? 
So at the end of Exodus 4, Moses goes to Pharaoh, right? What happens in Exodus 5? He does confront Pharaoh. What's Pharaoh's response? He strikes back. Pharaoh strikes back. Yes, very, this is very much the empire strikes back portion of this biblical canon. So what, and what does Pharaoh make the Hebrews do? Get their own straw. Right, get their own straw. So essentially he says, you still have to do all the work you did before, but it will be even harder. And when they don't do it, they will get beaten up. So th- this, this was a very poignant part of Becca's sermon for this past weekend, if you heard that, right? Um, I love this because it speaks to the realism of the Hebrew Bible, right? They didn't know what a light bulb was, and they never took penicillin, but they understood how powerful people react when you tell them what they don't want to hear. <laughs> and, and what happens is Pharaoh says, well, nuts to you, right? Well, I, well I'll show you what, what things look like if you don't want to do what I say. Okay, so that's chapter 5. We're not going to read chapter 6 out loud. Um, Well, we've got enough time. Why don't we read it out loud? Um, So turn with me to chapter 6, and we're just going to read the first 13 verses. Okay? Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of his land. God also spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they resided as aliens. I have also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord. And I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord." Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their cruel slavery. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his land. But Moses spoke to the Lord, the Israelites have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me, my poor speaker that I am? Thus the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them orders regarding the Israelites and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, changing them to free the Israelites, charging them to free the Israelites from the land of Egypt. Okay. So, um, what features of chapter six um, have we already seen in chapter three? So these could be obvious things. Another reminder of the covenant. Sure. So an, another reminder of the covenant, right? So in, that's in verse three, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is God Almighty, right? That's definitely there. There's another reminder of the covenant. What else? Moses is very reluctant. So we get another objection in verse 12 that's very similar to what was offered in chapter three. Yes. What else? 
right? The same command over and over again. God's still trying to get what he wants out of Moses. That's right. Mm-hmm. God is defining himself a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's the same idea of, that you saw in chapter three of here is my name. Here is who I am. I am the God of your ancestors. And you see the same idea of God's compassion, right? So um, chapter, verse five, I've also heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are holding as slaves. And I have remembered my covenant. So, Um, you can see I fleshed out all the duplications here. No, they're not duplications, repetitions. So there's attention to the pain of the Israelites. There's the invocation of Moses' ancestors. There's Moses' objections. And there's the revelation of the divine name, of the tetragrammaton. And the tetragrammaton is the most interesting part. So look again at chapter 6. Um... In verses two and three, I am the Lord, says God, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. So why do you think God says that here? So this is, let's go, this is going back to Randy's question. Why is God re repeating himself, as it were? <laughs> maybe, yeah, he, maybe, maybe God is simply doing it to get it through Moses' thick skull, right? And I think that's certainly part of what's going on here. Uh, let me just tell you what I have in mind. So one hypothesis I found in the commentaries that I think is really interesting is that chapters three and six were originally different versions of the same story. So they may be two pre-existing versions of the same story of God calling Moses that have been edited and joined together in the book of Exodus we have today. Right, there's a different backdrop to each story, right? Or they might be different versions with a slightly different twist covering much of the same material. Yes, that's how I would put it. So you'll recall, or you may not recall, I'm going to review. So the, the um, widely accepted idea um, among Old Testament scholars is that there are at least is something called the documentary hypothesis. The documentary hypothesis. There are at least four um, different strands that go into making up the first five books of the Bible. So one person didn't write the Pentateuch. One person didn't write Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Several people wrote it, and it's this rich byproduct of their collaborative efforts over time. We saw some evidence for this in Genesis, right? Where Genesis 1 is one story about the world being created in seven days, humans before animals, culminating in Sabbath with nothing left to do. Genesis 2 and 3 is a complementary story 
with some different emphases, but which differs crucially in detail. So Genesis 2 and 3 is a story where uh, God creates the man first, and then a bunch of animals, and then because the animals aren't fit to be a helper for the man, then he creates the woman. And so the the scholarly hypothesis is that those are actually two separate Hebrew stories originally that have been reverently joined together. And I think the odds are good that something similar is happening here in Exodus 3 and Exodus 6. And it doesn't mean one is better than the other. It doesn't mean one is the true version and one is the false version. Um, um, but it does account for the repetition of the divine name. So when you read chapter 6, it flows perfectly as, a, as a, just another chapter in the story, as an intensification of Moses' struggle with Pharaoh. The, the funny thing, the thing that has always stood out to me is, okay, God, we know about the divine name. You revealed the, the divine name to us three chapters ago. So I think there's a rough edge that is left into the story. That's how I would put it, right? The human fingerprint in the Bible. If you know what you're looking for, you'll find it. And the, the wonderful, faithful, God-fearing people who transmitted this Bible to us made a virtue out of necessity in the best sense. So they could have just said, all right, we've got these two stories about God's call to Moses. They're both good. We're going to both put them in the Bible, and they're just going to be next to each other, and we're going to let people pick. Instead, what they did is very creatively and, and beautifully weld them together into one larger story, so that instead of functioning as two stories about the same thing, they function as kind of a first call narrative and then a second call narrative where God has to go back to Moses again and essentially say, all right, boy, put on your big boy pants. <laughs> you are going to do this. You need to go back to Pharaoh. And the, the tell, of course, is that in the second one, God says, here's my name again, by the way. And the result on a, when, when we just sit down and read our Bibles today, the result is that the story is a literary and theological masterpiece, right? Um, it absolutely works as an intensification of the journey. And of course, it, the journey gets more and more intense in the chapters that follow as Moses enters into this struggle with Pharaoh and his magicians, and finally the Egyptian army, and then they're finally freed at the Red Sea. It's masterful. But I think what you see here is this, um, the one sort of rough edge or human fingerprint in which you see the two narratives being joined together. Are you tracking with me on that idea? Does that make sense? Do you have questions you want to ask? So it is, as I read uh, 6.2, one thing that jumps out between 6.2 and 6.3 is that um, he appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. Right. But I did not reveal to them my name, Yahweh, but I'm revealing it to you. Is he creating a differentiation between the patriarchs and who Moses is and, and saying, hey, you're special, you're different, mm -hmm. and I'm asking you to do this while I ask them 
to do what they did. Right. So yeah, they can make the people, but you're going to go and you're going to sure. free the people. And, and, and I don't know, because it seems to me to be a differentiation between yeah. what he shared with So, so Abraham, God Isaac, definitely says, I gave them that name, but I'm giving you this name. And I, I do think there is a sense of, yeah, of God uh, handing over or disclosing something that he has previously not handed over or disclosed. I, I think it's may, maybe an intensification or a deepening of that same relationship. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's definitely, definitely something to, to what your suggestion, because it is a new, it, from the perspective of Exodus 3 and 6, it is a new name. A facetious way of answering your first question might be is that the Bible was written for teenagers, too, <laughs> <laughs> and they had to repeat it. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And part of what I love is that so when we read this as scholars or as critical historians, we can affirm, okay, yes, maybe there's a human fingerprint here in which we see two pre-existing stories of the same thing being joined together. However, isn't it striking how well it works as just a story about how hard God has to work to get through to his lunk-headed servant, Moses? And I think that that's part of what's so wonderful about it, right? When I say they've made a virtue of necessity, that's part of what I mean, is that we all need, you know, thank God for God's persistence in our lives. Because if he only called once, you know, if he was like um, the sweepstakes winner, where if you miss your phone call, you don't get your prize, we'd all be dead in the water. And fortunately, God doesn't work that way. One observation that I have is that across God's encounters with, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in which he presented himself as God Almighty, mm -hmm. and and the uh, the encounter with with Moses, in which he disclosed another name, I am who I am. One thing that did not change across those those two uh, occurrences is the covenant. The original covenant mm -hmm. still stood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite right, quite right. Um, one of the things we're going to see next week is so there's a there is kind of a succession of covenants in the Old Testament so you get the covenant with with Abraham and then you get the Mosaic covenant so in Je Exodus 19 and 20 there's another slightly different covenant with a bunch of stipulations um, and it's a bunch of if then language so if you do X I will do Y but if you don't do X I will not do Y and then you, there's a, another one there's the covenant with David um, so keep your, be attentive to that language of covenant and who it's being made with and what its conditions are because there are a, several of them that are operative throughout the Old Testament. Um, okay. These are some questions I want to leave you with. Um, the God of Exodus, like the God of Genesis, is a God who works through people. God is a God who works through people. What you see here in Exodus is the emergence of this idea of calling or vocation. 
that God has particular tasks he gives to particular people. It's not just a nice word that pastors use because it helps us talk about what we want to talk about. It comes from the Bible. And especially the idea that calling is something that, that is not always embraced enthusiastically, but is taken on as a labor of love, or even in, in great difficulty and pain. Um, you know, Moses would much rather stay tending his flocks in Midian. That's where he's comfortable. He does not want to go. And he only goes because God compels him to go. Right? I mean, God doesn't pick him up and physically throw him, but God sticks with him. Like that person asking you out on a date again and again and again and again, and finally you say, okay, fine, I'll go. When you get to the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, I don't want to speak out as a prophet, but there's a fire in my bones and I can't hold it in and I'm compelled to utter this word that God has given me. I have to speak. And then, of course, you know, there are, I mean, there's Jesus' own vocation when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, God, if this is, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So, this opens up this very rich vein of reflection, and I just want to encourage you, think about what your vocations are. Think about what your callings are and how you can respond to them in your life. Thank you very much. See you in two weeks. This has been the Long Story Short podcast from Knox Presbyterian Church. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.